You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Hooray! Delicious Volume 1, Life Tastes Good, is finally at Amazon United States. What is delicious, you ask? Imagine a land where all your favorite foods live as human girls. Here in charming a la carte, under the floating city of heavenly delight, we meet Ramen, a young cook trying to run a restaurant with her family of pastas as they end up in all sorts of wacky adventures and hijinks as these strong, eccentric characters pursue their dreams and passions. Delicious is a beautifully drawn comedy series, which is now finally available to buy in the United States. Click on the banner on one of us, order today, and join in the fun now, because Delicious Volume 2, Yum Yum Yum, is coming really soon. A perfect gift for your child, or those of you who are forever young at heart. One of us strongly recommends this one. So I was having the same dream again, you know, I'm about to record a podcast. I've got everything set up. I've got all my links. I've got my pages open. I've done my voice checks, my mic tests. Everything's ready to go. And then I realize, oh my God, I'm naked. And it happens all the time. Boy, if I had a nickel. I mean, that's literally why Chris said to do video calls now. Well, then I realize, you know, they can't see me below the waist, so I'm probably okay. <laughs> and then I realize I also look like Jason Momoa. And then I go, oh, now I know I'm dreaming. <laughs> uh, and then I wake up and it turns out I'm just in bed, having fallen asleep, watching an okay movie on Netflix. <laughs> so begrudgingly okay to you. Okay. You know, I wanted a little bit more, but hey, we're here to talk about movies, not my dream life. Uh, We can do that later. I'll get on the couch and you can ask me about my mother and how I feel about teeth that fall out in the middle of a workplace meeting. But yeah, we're actually here today to talk about Slumberland, a new film that has gone straight to Netflix despite starring Jason Momoa and having been directed by Francis Lawrence, who's done a fair number of, you know... Very well-known music videos and some, you know, culty films, most notably things like Constantine, I Am Legend, uh, The Hunger Games. And they spent a surprising amount of money uh, on this adaptation of the Little Nemo comics from Windsor McKay. And yet... Uh, it just went straight to Netflix. I think, Ben, you didn't you say they had they were like in the Macy's Day Parade? I mean, has there been any promotion for this movie? I think Rose said that because, yeah, I mean, this movie... Oddly enough, has not been the biggest highlight for Netflix. I'm like, it seems like the perfect time of the season, at least for American Netflix, to have a movie that's kind of based on all these good things and these these much talent in it. Well, I didn't even realize that it was an adaptation of that like 1900s comic. I mean, Slumberland. That I thought that was just kind of their generic cutesy name for it, whatever. And I guess 
Yeah, seeing the float on the Macy's parade with the giant walking bed, that should have been a clue, but I was <laughs> sick when I watched it, so I guess it didn't really hit me. But yeah, as the movie went on and I saw the main character's name is Nemo and Dreams and then Flip, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. I can't remember the last time I saw a film that is so clearly based on existing IP, but seems to have no interest in engaging it with that IP or telling us about it. Because when you watch it, you know, it doesn't even identify, because I looked, it doesn't even identify Windsor McKay. It's not like based on the works of Windsor McKay or mm -hmm. adapted from Windsor McKay or from the, you know, visionary mind of Windsor McKay. Nothing like that. I kind of love that, though. It makes it its own thing. And visually, I think, is where this movie does stand out. I think visually mm -hmm. they did a fantastic job building these different dream worlds. And I feel like they distanced themselves more and more from, yes, Little Nemo in that way. But... It's also just building out, like, they want to kind of build out this universe. And I honestly even, like, I could see Netflix enjoying some more time with this if it does well. And I kind of wish it does because it's not bad in any way. I, I will say Marlo Barkley, who's our lead here as Nemo, we barely, like, she's not been in much else. She's a very newer actress. And it's like, I thought she was wonderful in this. She brought a lot of uh, great emotion and strength to this character that, you know, has one note of, you know, technically on paper, I've lost my father and I'm trying to, you know, get that back. Like, they, I feel like she adds a lot of depth to this, which, you know, deepens this movie past, you know, the, that surface level of just, you know, basically almost ripping off Little Nemo because it's so rarely, you know, addressing that connection. I, I have to wonder if they left that connection to it out of the marketing and whatnot, just because most people who would be familiar with it, I think, are like 125 years old at this point. <laughs> Hey, hey, I'm right here, Rose. You don't have to say it out loud, okay? <laughs> I know. I get it. Speaking of name properties, my name is Marco, and to help me talk about this new adaptation is Ben. Hi. And Rose. <sighs> Wake up, Rose. Wake up, Rose. You're dreaming. <laughs> You're dreaming. Uh, oh, wait. No, you'd have to watch Slumberland. Go back to bed. Uh, okay. uh, all right, bye. Uh, the casting is a little bit interesting all over the place. Momoa is probably the biggest name in this movie and mm -hmm. he's definitely taking it larger than life um and he's having some fun with it i mean look we all kind of know jason momoa is technically kind of a bro who's just a nice guy and he plays that well as he's trying to be kind of a slobby jerk here at the same time and he kind of has fun but i was more surprised to see kyle chandler having such a really good heartfelt role i don't yeah. think we see him too much and chris o'dowd really does bring a lot of heart to this as he's trying really hard to be a good dad here you mentioned jason momoa he is the big name on the poster here uh and he does probably have the most fun role uh rose mentioned that flip is in this and if you are a 125 years old <laughs> fan of the little nemo comics you'll recognize the name flip here, he has been largely recontextualized, uh, as has the character of Nemo, who's been gender-swapped, and it, it uses some of the ideas that Windsor McKay uh, used famously uh, in his comic strip. Here, like Ben said earlier, it's it's just kind of a framework, an inspiration, but it, it felt so disconnected from the IP. It was like, you, you could have just made up this movie and changed the names, and no one would have thought that this was a Little Nemo in Slumberland adaptation, which they've tried several times before, but I think 
they've never had the budget to pull off the sort of psychedelic eye-popping visuals of the comic strip, but they can do it now. And they started to, like the the first dream, once the adventure really truly gets rolling, is, is a really cool sequence in a ballroom where all the dancers are still vaguely humanoid but they're made of like clouds of butterflies and yeah that that was really cool and then that's kind of the last really neat looking surreal visual location that we visit the rest of them are heavily green screened in which i was kind of fine with because it, it looked better more than it didn't but most of the other locations you get to visit after that and we do see them repeatedly are just kind of eh not as spectacular as the first one. That was disappointing. When the movie opens up, we meet Nemo. She has an idyllic life. She she lives alone with her father on a in a lighthouse. She's homeschooled. She seems to be very happy. Everything's great. You know, if you want a gruff, lovable dad, Kyle Chandler's a pretty good choice. Every night he tells her a story. They clearly have strong imaginations and a deep affection for one another. And because this is a kid's movie, you know that's not going to last. Poor Kyle Chandler uh, passes away one day and she is sent to the city. It's never We're never told which city, but she leaves the lighthouse and has to live with her uncle uh, who is so boring he literally sells doorknobs. Uh, <laughs> he's not a bad guy. He's estranged from his brother. He has no idea how to take care of children. He doesn't have any friends. So, you know, she's going to school for the first time and not really happy. In her dreams, she encounters a guy named Flip, a character that her father always told her about. Now Flip is appearing to her in her dreams. Flip being played by Jason Momoa in a performance that feels like he's basically channeling Beetlejuice by way of Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, hey, you and me and your dad, you, you know, we were partners in crime. We were outcast and outlaws. I know this place in the dream world where if you go to its deepest level, you can find these pearls that'll grant you whatever wish. Of course, she wants to have her father back and see him in her dreams again. He wants to remember who the hell he is because he's been in Slumberland so long, he doesn't even remember who he used to be in the real world. And th apparently there's a lot of rules. They get mentioned, but nothing really happens with them. I mean, the weirdest rule is they're being chased basically by the TVA from Loki. Like, yeah. they ba like legitimately somebody watched Loki and said, well, that could be fun to add into Nemo and Slumberland, right? Yeah, but it's also the same gag from Beetlejuice. It's the same gag in Time Bandits. It's the same gag in a lot of things where you have this abstract concept, whether it be the afterlife or time or dreams, and it turns out... There's just a bureaucracy stuck in the 1970s whose agents are trying to catch our protagonist and chasing them through different worlds. And as Rose said, after a while, you see the same worlds over and over again. Slumberland's supposed to have like infinite worlds of dreams, and we just see the same four or five. I think that makes sense for me, though, because the way they explain it is they're trying to find a specific path following this map to get to the Nightmare Sea to get these pearls. And so to follow the map, they have to follow this trail, and they keep getting interrupted on that trail. So I think between that, it makes sense why they have it limited, but I agree... Uh, it feels like it could go so much further, and part of that might just be, as I said, maybe they want to try to franchise this out. Maybe they want to make more, and they can use more Dreamland or Slumberland. That'd be great. But here, I think we get maybe two very interesting worlds. We get, there's that first one, the ballroom. There's the one with the glass city, which is pretty cool. 
and then after that we get the the jokey one with Canadians, which is great. I do like that <laughs> joke, and it plays off well. And we also get the guy who basically is in the bathroom for Mission Impossible, where you know cocking his arms <laughs> yeah. to fight. Uh, that's all I can think about every time we got to that scene. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's. I feel like they need that kind of mix of depth though, because they play at the jokes as well that. They're, the biggest thing in dream world is reoccurring dreams and everybody has these reoccurring dreams and I think it's funny how they play to that I didn't think it hindered the movie that they got a little less dynamic there because when they got to the nightmare see like when we actually get to see that location I think it is the right level of like barren and creepy and desolate like there is I think they do a lot with their effects and their atmosphere that I, I really credit the movie because that's the stuff that kept me interested more than the story. The story is kind of a, a basic, you know, tween movie plot at best, I think. Yeah, I agree that the visuals are the big selling point here. And it's fine if the CG looks very obviously CG because it's a dream world. You can always kind of just go, okay, it, it shouldn't look real. I think one of my issues is that when we're in the real world, it also looks like it's on a green screen half the time. And it's hard for me to invest in the real world that they're trying to depict, especially when it's simple things like people on a boat in, you know, on a beautiful day. And yet I know the two actors are just sitting in a green screen. Well, when they got to the real world, it everything looked weirdly sterile to me, which I guess, you know, of course, makes sense compared to the dreamland and everything. But the the set in the in the beginning with her and her father on the lighthouse that all looked very cozy and very lived in and lovely and I just wanted to stay there but when it got to her uncle in the real world and his really swank penthouse apartment and especially the school that she goes to it just it felt like they filmed in an office building that they had access to for a day it, it didn't feel like a school in any sense even a really rich private school that this is supposed to be that he sent her to it just those locations felt very very strange compared to the dream world. I, I think they're almost meant to be because I mean none of these places she gets sent to. The school is nice. She doesn't have the whole. They didn't go with the whole stupid bullies bullying her as the weirdo outsider. Mm-hmm, that was nice. Chris O'Dowd is honestly really out of his element as in this character, but really trying his hardest to be a good uncle, good father, and it's like. She's she's getting as much positivity as you can in this situation. I I almost feel like that sterile feel is one something I can't spoil about a character that relates to her uncle. But why he would be so sterile is one thing. And then two about the school is that it's like these are things that she feels so disconnected. I read those as almost like using the uh, scenery and the way it's shot to show you the character's feelings more that she feels sterile and disconnected from these places they're not lived in, like her home. Like, when she sets up a camp at the school, she brings a hammock, and it's, like, so homey and basic <laughs> that it makes sense to me. And it's like, okay, as I said, I, maybe I'm reading into it, but maybe maybe that's what they were going for, too, is putting that much of using the environment to express feelings for the character. Oh, no, for sure. And that, that I mean, that's the perfectly valid reading. It's just... To to me, to my sensibilities, the the actual set design and stuff of the school and whatnot just felt off. Even even if that was the goal they had in mind, I just didn't think they pulled it off that well because it just eh, it looked kind of cheap, I guess. It has a strange sense of place and geography. I mean, she grows up in this beautiful lighthouse on a little island somewhere, and then she goes to the big city. But later on characters take a boat to that island in very quick time. And I'm like, wait a minute, 
I thought this was very distant. Uh, it's just a, a mile away. I mean, it it really threw me because you shouldn't be able to travel to the lighthouse in a boat that quickly. And I couldn't figure what city we were in. It was just like Toronto, Manhattan, LA, London, just generic. You know, we don't know where we are. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess I wanted to be grounded in the real world so that it would make the slumberland elements more dreamlike and imaginative because that is, as Ben said, and as Rosa said, that's really the best thing they've got going here for them. Uh, even with Momoa's uh, silly, over-the-top performance, he's clearly having a great time. But at some point, we all learn something about that character that changes the narrative. And I thought, oh, okay, we're finally getting somewhere. We also reach a similar point with the narrative between the girl and her uncle. And then I looked at the counter and I was like, We've got another 40 minutes left of this movie. Everybody knows what the stakes are and what's going on. Why is this dragging out so long? That's ultimately my biggest complaint. There is no reason this should clock in at almost two hours. Not for a kid's movie. Yeah, that that's my my one big sticking point as well, is they, they set up the stakes, they set up all the characters, everything's nice and cleanly laid out, and yeah, it's it's just a little bit too long i mean this this could have very easily been 90 minutes or 100 minutes or something like that and still have been just as if not more so effective i think it was just a little bit too long well before we go too long why don't we start <laughs> rolling into our final thoughts ben kick us off please sure um i think from our conversation here maybe i liked it the most out of all of us but i think we're all kind of at the same level where it's just like it's not offensive besides being a little too long and, you know, as I said, my hope is that maybe they do see it as a way to open a door to do more big productions, because I see a lot of places where it seems like they would love to come back to this world, and I would love for them to, because there is some great visuals and ideas here. I think Momoa's having a very good time. As I said, uh, I also think Marla Barkley as a new star, I think she's wonderful in this. I think she really adds a lot. And Chris O'Dowd really, I think, does so much but it's so subtle throughout this movie. Like you actually have to be paying attention to him really working at it because he's trying. And like, there's bits where they make it really obvious when he's trying, but like there's those little ticks that Chris O'Dowd as such a seasoned actor really does pull off so well. And also he leaves so many great little hints to who his character is and how we know who his character in other ways that I can't spoil there. And I will say there's plenty of times I outright laugh at this movie and like to laugh in a good way. Like the jokes connect. There are good jokes here. One of my favorites is still, she gets a book that's supposed to be really boring. And it's just like, <laughs> God oh my damn God. it. This is interesting. I'm like, yeah, actually, I would read that book, too. I laughed out loud so hard at that part. I had to rewind it and watch it again. That was such <laughs> a delightful moment. Her reaction, like her, she has the perfect emotive reaction to that, which is like, God damn it, I like this. Yeah, that's that's a book that I would enjoy myself. Exactly. It's like, you know, I kind of would read that. But um, I digress. I could go on for a while about the other little good things, because, again, we've, we sounded like we've been negative because we brought up a lot of negative, and that's because it's two hours long, and it, and it shows its bad side for that reason. But honestly, if you have kids that are not easily sent to nightmares by some really dark imagery, you know, the stuff that I would say a lot of us 20, 30, 40 somethings all grew up on was a lot more scarier media than some of the stuff today. This does a good job with that. Watch this with them around the holiday season if you want something. It would have been great for Thanksgiving last week uh, if you have like tweens that are okay with that. But it is a dark fantasy that I enjoyed, and I'm going to give it uh, seven and a half out of ten 
uh, flies that you eat with chopsticks. <laughs> nice. Rose? Uh, yeah, likewise. I mean, this if this came out exactly as is when I was a kid, I would have been all over it. This this was exactly my type of jam from yeah, the, the dark fantasy to the kind of lonely little girl searching for her place and, and having adventures and all that. I, I was... That was definitely my thing, and I I think that it really did kind of capture that sense of 80s and 90s kids' adventure movie, um, right down to having the kids swear at one point. That was just absolutely hysterical. I liked it more than I didn't like it. I mean, yeah, it sounds like we've been ragging on it, but really, I, I got no beef with this movie aside from it being a little bit too long. Uh, this was... I like that they kind of did play fast and loose with the source material because it is so old and you can do so many things with it, especially with the very premise of it being set in dreams and things like that. And I I thought it was an admirable attempt for what it was. They just needed to cut it down a little bit. And I am also going to give it seven and a half really, really cute little stuffed piggy <laughs> uh, adventure buddies out of 10. I think we've all said it. We've kind of sound negative about this, because it is long, it gives you enough time that you can start looking at the cracks in this, which is too bad because what's here uh, shows so much promise. There's there's a fantastic little movie in here. It's just dragged down by this long runtime and certain things that are introduced never really pay off. The idea that if you die in your dream, you just wake up in bed, you know, because that happens all the time. But the danger is to get to these locations you have to go through other people's dreams and bad things can happen to you if you die in somebody else's dreams. But we never really feel that tension there, even though we go to some of those same worlds over and over and they obviously get in danger. I, I never felt that. And, and I wanted there to be a little bit more edge to this because it wants to be that dark fantasy, but it also wants to be this kind of cozy, cute little, you know, piece of fluff. And as Rose said, you know, it's the kind of stuff we grew up on, and it was much harder, much edgier. I mean, like, I fucking love Time Bandits. I mean, this kind of feels like Time Bandits. Mm -hmm. Everybody's trying to get this map, and they're jumping into different worlds, only now they're jumping through different dreams. Things could go bad, and here I never felt like anybody was any in any real danger. And so many of the elements that I do like are things I've seen done better every in everything, from Beetlejuice to Time Bandits to Loki and so on. They just felt, it just felt a little derivative and way too long. And maybe I'm just not the right audience. This is for 12 year olds, not 125 year olds <laughs> or somebody who's only maybe half that age. I'm going to give this six out of 10 books about the history of doorknobs that I would totally read. It looked yeah. fascinating. I, I, I love that shit. Lock picks and how, how things work and, you know, who wouldn't? And, and you're right. That is the best joke. Think about that. All three of us have identified that as the best joke. And really, I can't think of any others. Uh, that was really the only one that really got me. <laughs> well, you know, we can keep talking about this or we could all just go watch the Page Master again. There we go. I don't think I'm ready for that, Ben. I, I think I finally I think I finally got over that nightmare. I don't feel ready to relive it. I think I'm just going to go to bed. Off the slumberland. 